I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What got you I always wonder uh, why so many people aren't able to be contrarian. And I think it's because the human, the human body has that gene in it because it's probably for, on average, it's a good thing to be uh, able to follow the tribe. But in the investment world, uh, you want to be able to think on your own and not follow blindly uh, the other investors. And I think that's one very important key for success. Francois Rochon is the president and portfolio manager of Giverny Capital. Francois founded Giverny on his investment philosophy of owning outstanding companies for the long term. And that philosophy has helped him in having one of the best investing track records that there is. If you had invested $100,000 with Francois in 1993, that same $100,000 would be worth about $4.5 million today. But if you had invested that same $100,000 only in the market, you would have just over $1 million. Francois is truly a legend in the investment world. On this episode, he discusses his investment principles, his approach to lifelong learning, dealing with your failures, and how art is at the center of his life. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Francois, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. What about you? I'm doing very well. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. You're one of those thinkers I've learned a lot from, so I'm hoping the listeners can as well. And I think a good jumping off point could be what appears to be two inflection points in your career. And the first one I'd like to talk about is a trip you took to Giverny Gardens back in 1990. Can you talk about this? Yes, I had just finished um, studying engineering. And I had a big passion for arts. So I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do, uh, you know, with my life now that uh, school was over. So um, that summer I went to France and um, went to visit Giverny, which is the city, well, the village where um, Claude Monet lived uh, a big chunk of his life. And uh, I think from 80, 1883 to 1926, so probably most of his life. And um, 
this is a beautiful place where uh, he had uh, gardens with uh, water lilies and beautiful flowers and a beautiful house too. And um, when I went there, I was really, really impressed. And, you know, I was looking for some kind of big project for my life. And uh, I had this vision of building a similar setting uh, somewhere near my hometown in Montreal, uh, where, you know, there would be beautiful gardens, uh, a place where there's beauty and harmony and also arts. So I said, well, I could build a museum within a beautiful surrounding. And uh, of course, the, the next thing was, uh, I'll need to get rich. <laughs> so uh, I should try to find probably something uh, different from engineering or even being a painter because I went at that time I did also as a hobby I uh, was a painter so um, I always had an interest in the stock market and uh, so I decided to uh, to study uh, that uh, domain a little more because uh, I had such uh, big projects yeah, certainly making a little money there wouldn't wouldn't hurt being able to recreate the gardens there. But I'd venture to say potentially the second big thing was in 1993 when you wrote a letter to a Mr. Warren Buffett. Uh, can you talk about this and, and, and the reasoning why you wrote him that letter? Yeah, so um, when I got back to Montreal in 1990, I uh, decided that I wanted to get rich. So I tried on my own to study how to invest in the stock market. So I read books about investing. I also read books on accounting. Um, and I tried all sorts of things, uh, including uh, technical analysis for investing in the stock market. And, you know, I, I didn't feel it made a lot of sense. And at some point I read an article in a newspaper and they talked about Warren Buffett and um, Never had heard of him, so uh, pretty quickly I um, I wrote him a letter. So probably early '93, and um, told him I was interested in investing and I would like to read uh, his annual letter. So that was before the internet. So he sent me a big package through the, through mail of all the annual letters since I think 1977, and I read that and. Uh, my vision of investing in the stock market uh, changed overnight. So I realized that it was not gambling. It was not something that uh, uh, was totally without logic. If you were rational, analytical, and very uh, prudent and uh, uh, thorough in your analysis, you could do very well. So I started to apply uh, Warren Buffett's teaching uh, to my investment and uh, not only did the results got much better but also it made much more sense than before. Did you reimburse Warren for the postage to, s to send that letters? Uh, sorry? Did you did you reimburse Warren Buffett for the, uh, the, the cost of postage? No but uh, perhaps I should <laughs> well, with interest. Yeah, no, I, I love these two moments because I think they really coalesce and, and show what you've been able to do and, and accomplish and kind of the starting off point. 
And a few minutes ago, you were mentioning that you were trained as an engineer. And I would just love to know what this type of training, how that helped you become a better investor, having that background. Uh, probably, I would say it helped me in two ways. The first one, uh, well, probably it was a link to a polytechnical school in Montreal. And um, the way uh, I learned about uh, engineering was really true self uh, I was really self-taught, so although I had teachers and everything, uh, most of the, the learning was done through reading books. So I learned to learn uh, at the university. Uh, and the second part I would say is that um, I think you have a much more rational mind uh, toward analysis and looking at the probabilities and how the world function then in my opinion when you study finance so i have a mind that was i think better prepared for the investment world yeah you mentioned having that mind so i'd really be intrigued to know about then as an engineer you're used to being so precise on things and the imprecise nature of investing is something totally different where 30 35 40% even 50% of the time you may be wrong how do you deal with those two opposing forces well i don't think there's uh, anything that um is uh, uh ambivalent there i think as an engineer you learn that things are not precise and that uh, you need a big margin of safety and you also learn very early about um, the significance of numbers. So I'm always amazed when uh, you read that the, uh, the return of, of a stock a year is 12.39%. I mean, stocks fluctuate by uh, something like one or 2% a day. So what does the 0.39% really means? Uh, so I think you understand that too much precision means nothing when yeah, I think you have a good uh, scientific mind. And I think it helps you to, to look at things in a, in a more realistic ways. So not having too much precision there, it almost sounds like you're an artist in the investing world. Is that how you view yourself? Um, I like to think that um, I've taken, and I like to think I'm always improving also the craft, but um, I've taken some good things from many different uh, activities, will it be finance or accounting or the arts or uh, engineering or history or um, psychology, I would say also. So you, you can use a lot of uh, good lessons from all those uh, human activities and, you know, try to synthesize kind of a global mind that uh, has a lots of uh, ways of seeing the world. Yeah, I, I love the multidisciplinary approach there, and learning to be a, a better investor. And I know someone that you've admired is, uh, is Peter Lynch. And one of the great quotes that he said was looking back on his career, he learned much more studying history and philosophy than statistics. And you mentioned a, a few different disciplines there. Which ones have been the big drivers for you that have had the, the biggest impact outside of investing that you've used to become a better investor? Um, probably on the art uh, world, it's really, I think the great artists and the great artworks have something I would say almost unique 
very original, but also a, a unique character. Character, and when I look at companies, I try to find companies that have some kind of uniqueness in their business model or product or service, or even in the management and culture of the company. So, um, as masterpieces have something unique, great companies also have some kind of a unique character. Character. Um, and I think also I learned a lot while I, I talk about the margin of safety in the uh, engineering profession, but also in the psychology world. Uh, I think you have to understand all the biases that our uh, uh, human emotions uh, put uh, in front of rational thoughts. And you have to be aware of those biases and try to I mean, I always say you cannot remove the emotion, but you can choose to act uh, beyond them. And uh, I think when you understand that, it really helps also in the investment world. Yeah, you mentioned understanding the biases, and I feel like those have really come to popular light the past few years, talking about mental models and things along that line. I'd love to know what your process is like for, for better understanding the biases and then being able to understand them while making investment decisions. Is it very methodical for you or is it just something in a skill you've learned over time? Well, you know, it, it's nothing really, it, it's not an exact science. It's really trying to understand human nature and probably most important uh, uh, person you want to understand is yourself. So usually we're the ones that uh, put the barriers uh, in front of rationality. So, uh, but you know, Simple example would be you buy a stock and uh, you think very highly of uh, the company and management and things do not turn out exactly as hoped for. Uh, sometimes it's hard to convince yourself, well, you've made a mistake and you have to move. And uh, I mean, you have to uh, be able to almost look at any... Uh, uh, company or situation with fresh new eyes, so without biases. And that's not easy to do, but I force myself sometimes to, I call it uh, um, the white paper. So I took, it's, it's not a real paper, but uh, if I would build the portfolio again from scratch, would I buy all the same securities? And sometimes it helps to see, well, if there are one or two that uh, you're not really sure, well, perhaps there's a good reason for that reaction and you have to look into it. That white paper approach, how often are you doing that, going back and, and analyzing all of the purchases you currently have in your portfolio? Well, you, you do, yeah, you don't want to do that every week, but uh, probably once a year. Interesting. You sit, you sit down and just uh, try to... Uh, you know, if I would uh, start a portfolio today uh, from scratch, would I have exactly the same names? Is this something that that you do every year in addition to a few other higher level analysis of both yourself personally and the business overall? Um, well, it's, it's not, you know, in the... The business plan, but uh, I try to do it uh, on a regular basis, being about once a year. You know, just sit down and uh, think about everything, and uh, 
do you need to make some changes? And usually it helps to to look at things from a new perspective. And uh, I think uh, once a year, if you do it too much, too often, I don't think it's as useful. But once a year is probably a good 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 number. Yeah, you bring up a great point. Doing it too much, you might you might overanalyze and, and get into your own head there. You've brought up a few interesting points just about being able to think differently and, and understand unique things. And I, I know being a successful investor, you have to have that unconventional nature. And uh, I just know for you that that's one of your fundamental principles. So I'd love to hear how you go about being unconventional, unconventional so you can have better returns. Um, you know, it's a little strange because, um, I wrote a few years ago in, uh, one of the annual letter, I don't remember if it was 2013, but you know, six or seven years ago, uh, I said that I think one important, uh, quality, I'm not, I'm not sure it's a quality, but something that was needed to be able to overperform was what I call the missing gene. Uh, basically, I think human being has a gene, a tribal gene, that makes them follow the tribe. So when all the humans are running on the, the left side, I don't know the exact number, but I would say 95% of people will follow the crowd and the tribe. And probably something like 5% of people are able to go on the right side if they believe that's the right way to go. And uh, those people, for some reason, don't have the tribal gene. So it's almost a defect because uh, they should get it because it's something that has been passed, you know, for the last 20,000 years because, uh, you know, we were chased by tigers and uh, elephants or anything that we were hunting. So... Um, but you know, when I believe you don't have that gene, uh, the odds of overperforming are much better. So I think a large part of success is almost uh, from the start a new gene. Of course, I don't have any proof of that. It's just my own theory about that. So uh, I always wonder uh, why so many people aren't able to be contrarian. And I think it's because the human, the human body has that gene in it because it's probably for, on average, it's a good thing to be uh, able to follow the tribe. But in the investment world, uh, you want to be able to, uh, to, to think on your own and not follow blindly uh, the other investors. Yeah. I think that's one very important key for success. Yeah, you've, you've written extensively about independent thinking being at the core uh, of what you guys do and the importance of that. Was that something you were born with, or do you think you developed that more over time? I think that we're born with it. Um, I like to think, uh, at least, uh, I don't have that gene. Uh, but um, I think a lot of great writers, great artists... Uh, great scientists, uh, great businessmen or women, um, I think they have a similar missing gene. And uh, if, if you have the tribal gene, I think it's very, very hard to resist, uh, mostly during 
bear markets and panics. It's very hard to resist the, the call of the herd. And if you can't resist following the others, it's almost impossible in my views for in the long run to be able to, uh, to be the index. I know one of the things you guys do at Giverny Capital is you keep the team small. Is this yes. one yeah. of the things you're specifically looking for at those rare times you do bring someone new on? Um, well, we're, uh, we're a little, you know, a little more than when I started because uh, for a few years I was all alone, but, uh, I think if you count everyone, well, we're 15 now. So, uh, I consider that pretty small. Um, but you know, a lot of firms, they'll have different products and the idea is very simple because it's better for marketing reason when you have a, you know, 10 different funds. So it's, Every year, there's one or two that will do better than the others, and it'll be easy to, to sell. And when you have a few that underperform, well, the others can compensate. I'm, I'm not a big believer in that. I think uh, we should have just one portfolio uh, and um, have something like 25 names in it. And... Uh, be very focused on finding the best opportunities out there and uh, the top 25 ideas and just focus on those. I think the more names you have, the less likely you are to uh, overperform the averages. Uh, so yeah, I think it's very important to very, to be focused and to have a very um, precise approach and discipline so not only are you focused in terms of numbers, but you also focus in terms of the style you, you have to invest. And I think, I like to think that as Giverny, we have a style and a culture that uh, try to be very, very selective on quality of companies. And also discipline on the price we pay for such great companies, because if you buy outstanding businesses but that trade at 40 or 50 times earnings i don't believe you have enough margin of safety uh to uh, to have good long-term results uh probably a few of them will do okay but uh, you'll you also will have a few big losers and uh, so what we want is to find great companies and buy them at reasonable valuation and it's uh, it's a hard task and I think uh, we have to be very uh, focused and selective and disciplined. So, uh, and I like to think that uh, all the people that uh, uh, look at annual reports and look at securities and analysis, uh, I think they they all share that uh, that philosophy. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to exploring quality a little bit more in terms of how you analyze companies. But something you were talking about a minute ago was just talking about starting off basically on your own and then the ability to develop your own style. So I'm wondering, was there a certain point when you just felt comfortable that you had developed your own style? I think pretty early uh, I had uh, I had my own style. Um, it's probably looking at companies that have very high profitability, so high margins, high return on capital, very low debt level, very conservative also. And um, conservatism is really to have an account, uh, an accounting that is 
always on the safe side and you want earnings to be understated instead of being overstated and also that uh, you know they they have a long-term view they're really building the managers are really building a company for the next decades so uh, everything they do they, uh, they have a very long-term horizon uh, the way they work with clients and the suppliers and their employees. So it's really a quel- culture thing. So it's very important. Quality is really linked to the culture, I believe. And um, that's why I think it's so important to focus on great management. Um, it's not easy because it's a little more subjective than just looking at numbers. But numbers, is they are important, of course, but they mostly reflect the past. So when you're buying shares, you're buying the future. So you want to be sure that only, not only does the company has a great past, but also that the management in place is building a great future for, for your ownership of the business. I'd love to hit on a specific example of that subjective nature around great management. And, and you made an investment in Disney. I'm pretty sure it was the day Bob Iger became CEO. Is that correct? Yeah, in September 2005. So this is interesting timing, uh, just in terms of what's happened the past few months here with, with Mr. Iger stepping aside. What about him and the management that was in place made you put that investment on and feel comfortable with it? That's a very good question. Um, you know, I just read about him. I read a few interviews with him, and... Uh, I just felt he was the right person because at that time, Disney needed needed to, to do some changes. And I think the most important one was to have a better and strong long-term relationship with Pixar. And uh, in the end, uh, Bob Iger, uh, they acquired Pixar. So, and then Marvel, which I think was also a great acquisition. And they really focused on improving um, the uh, the quality of the movies they were producing and uh, the content was really a big part of the focus with Bob Iger uh, and you know I don't want to say anything bad about the previous management I think uh, the other were before him did a great job too but they were probably more into uh, distribution and finding where do we want to go the company? And I felt that Bob Iger was more into, well, we need quality content first. And I believed uh, that was uh, the, the, the best way to go. And um, yeah, so when Bob Iger was named CEO, uh, I always knew the company very well because I owned it before. And uh, we had sold it, I think, I think we owned it for two or four years from 96 to 2000. And uh, I had sold it and bought it back in 2005. And uh, I didn't look uh, recently, but I think uh, earnings, if, if you don't count uh, the last few quarters, uh, the earnings has grown, have grown about 14% annually during the time that uh, Bob Iger was there, which, which is phenomenal for a company of the size of Disney. And he's done a great job. And I'm a little sad that these is well he's not totally leaving but uh, he's not ceo anymore but 
you know, he can't uh, stay there uh, forever, but uh, I think he's done a fantastic job for uh, Disney shareholders. Did you happen to read his, his recent biography, The Ride of a Lifetime? Yeah. Yeah, it was great hearing those stories uh, about the acquisition of Pixar. You, you mentioned one of those, those key and pivotal moments. Uh, so that's a, yeah. That was a fun read. You you mentioned reading multiple interviews and you knew he was the guy. So it intrigues me. Where do you find your best ideas? Is that how most of your investments come to fruition? You know, um, yeah, it's a job. It's a strange job because it's a job that you you do a little work every day and it's cumulative, and you do it all sorts of ways. It's just sometimes just by shopping in some malls or going to eat in a restaurant and, you know, you find it's a good concept and the food is great and the price makes sense. So next question, uh, like Peter Lynch would say, is uh, what about the stock? So I always say that our capitalist antennas are always on. And uh, what really I think uh, helped is probably six months after we bought our shares of Disney, I was at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting and I saw Tom Murphy at the hotel and uh, the lobby of the hotel. And I went to speak to him uh, five minutes and uh, I asked him the, about Bob Iger and I knew that they worked together for a while. So, uh, and of course, Mr. Murphy knew uh, Disney very well too. So, um, and he said very nice words about him. And uh, I think that was a uh, kind of a confirmation that uh, what I had read before was uh, right on target. I mean, this this looked like a, a very very strong person to uh, to lead Disney. So sometimes you find little things that little comments that someone that you trust, and uh, it helps uh, validate uh, your thinking. And everything is about probability. So you want the most uh, higher level of information that helps you increase your odds of success. So the more you read, the more you know about a company or uh, management, uh, usually uh, it helps increase the odds of success. You mentioned always having that antenna up and whether it be you're shopping in a mall or come across a certain article, it, it makes me think of a sports athlete called a basketball player. He's working on his jump shot every day. A musician might be practicing uh, specific scales. What about you? What do you need to do every single day to remain at the top of your game? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think the greatest quality as an investor, but probably also as a human being in general, I think is to be humble have humility so it's not easy sometimes because uh, uh, you're, you're you're human and sometimes you uh, you can uh, think you've done well and you have an ego that you want to protect also so uh, humility is not necessarily easy to always uh, be able to uh, to have when you're studying or working with others or uh, meeting with uh, uh, clients or companies or anyone. So, but I would say that uh, what you want is to have a, 
the humility of always being uh, learning. So you, every day I want to learn something. I want to read more about an industry, a business, uh, about how the world is changing. And um, I talk about the importance of uh, uh, getting over our own biases. I think humility really helps because if you're not humble, you won't be able to see those biases. So I think humility is probably the greatest quality you can have as an investor. And um, I said that once, I said that the greatest artists I have met were also the more humble, the most humble ones. And that's that's really strange because you would think that, you know, they're the best of the best. So they, and it's not all great artists that were humble. We can think probably of some names, but uh, a lot of great artists I have met they're humble people, and I try to uh, to cultivate uh, humility. And like I said, it's not always easy. And uh, but you know, there's nothing like uh, losing money on a stock to get a little more humble. Yeah, that, that that'll certainly do it. Uh, I I've heard you mention in the past about Giverny's competitive advantage, and you say it's three things: humility, which you were just referring to, patience, and then also rationality. Do these three still hold true? Oh yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, uh, investing is really about principles and, you know, philosophy, investment philosophy, but, you know, they're really principles. So you apply principles. And I think uh, uh, rationality, patience, and humility is having the right human qualities to be able to uh, apply uh, your investment philosophy and principles. And, you know, by definition, principles don't change. Uh, of course, some names in the portfolio can change because either you find something better or things change. And that's just the nature of our civilization that things evolve all the time. So you have to be able to, you know, uh, your, uh, the way you look at investments has to change and evolve. But I think the fundamental principles, they have to stay the same. You mentioned the principle staying the same, and I know this is slightly different about following your own rules. And I know you've mentioned in the past that you need to be able to follow your own rules, but you also have to have the wisdom to know when to break them. Can you just elaborate on this? Because I know there's a lot of nuance here. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a few examples. I mean, um, I remember it was many years ago, but... Uh, I had, and I still have this criteria that companies have to be profitable before investing. And uh, probably in 99, I'm not exactly sure, so more than 20 years ago, I bought some shares of Expedia. And also, I don't think the company was profitable then. So, um, but, you know, I just felt that, you know, Expedia had a great brand, a great product. And, you know, I, I, I thought that the, the internet revolution that was just starting, they they would be a winner. And uh, I bought just a few shares. And uh, I didn't buy enough to, to make a difference. So, and of course, the stock did very, very well going forward. So that was a mistake. And I remember saying to myself, well, it's not profitable, but I really believe that the company has something unique. Um, 
and uh, you know I I missed it and uh, so I thought to myself well sometimes you have to uh, to break your own rule and I labeled that wisdom but I'm not that wise often so no 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 I, I appreciate the example and, and thinking on your feet there and being able to circle back to that one more than 20 years later you were talking about humility and, and this really intrigues me how do you just make sure that you, that you're not overextending yourself and going towards hubris and if you do how do you make sure that doesn't start to cloud your judgment that's not easy and um like i said uh, you want to to know yourself and was it socrates that uh two thousand years ago said that the biggest uh, wisdom was to know yourself uh, and it's a lifelong process because you know we are framed in some ways and it's sometimes very hard to to change the way you look at things but i think humility uh it's really um to force yourself at uh you know saying well i could improve this or you know uh, i don't have the same opinion as others but perhaps i should look at this in some other ways to see if there's not something I'm missing. But, you know, if you want to be right, you won't go in that, into that direction. So you have to think for yourself, well, it's not the most important thing to be right. The important thing is to, uh, to keep learning and to improve yourself. And uh, brick by brick, one day after another, uh, you slowly uh, uh, improve uh, as an investor, because you've learned a little bit uh, to uh, overcome a few preconceptions that you have or biases that uh, wasn't a way of uh, improving yourself. And, uh, but that's not easy. And, you know, we're in totally non-scientific uh, parameters there. So it's really sometimes just to sit down on a chair and just thinking about uh our, am i on the right path here and you know sometimes you are and you just stay the course and sometimes uh, you realize that perhaps you can change something and you just want to evolve a little bit when but, you're you know it's not it's not an algorithm it's really about trying to understand your ways of seeing things and trying to look at the world in a very objective manner, which is not easy. Yeah, because I, don't, I don't think any of this is. Yeah, so that's that's not our nature to be objective, it seems. When you're sitting back in that chair and you're really doing that deep work and that thinking, ha, are there things recently that you come across that you feel you need more improvement in? Yes. Um, it struck me that... Um, a lot of companies that I thought, I don't know, five or 10 years ago were way too expensive. They had way too high P ratio. In the end, turned out to be great investments. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking Amazon, for instance. And uh, I'm not sure if it's, if it's the right price today, but uh, I looked at it 
I don't know exactly when, but six or seven years ago. And I thought it was a little too expensive. And uh, it turned out to be a big mistake because uh, I don't think I, you know, understood it enough then. And I probably under, uh, uh, yeah, I, it was hard to see how fast it could grow, but they did grow very, very fast. And of course, uh, uh, the uh, Amazon Web Servers was an extraordinary uh, business that they've built in just a few years, which is uh, probably their main source of earnings today. And, you know, uh, I didn't see the potential a few years ago, and uh, that was a mistake. So. Recently, I said to myself, well, perhaps I should not be too quick to uh, put a company into the too hard pile because the valuation is high. Uh, perhaps sometimes a few outstanding companies are worth their high P's. And it's hard for someone that was you know, raised reading Warren Buffett and Ben Graham and Peter Lynch to to uh, say, well, perhaps I should pay higher P sometimes when I really believe it's worth it. So I try to uh, to look at that uh, in a different angle than before. No, that was a, another another fantastic example. And I'd, I'd love to dive back into patience. And you've got a great saying, patience is not the ability to wait, but the ability to keep a good attitude while waiting. And I, I'd love to know, how do you build that into your company so that each yeah, new... Yeah, that was the quote. I don't remember where I got it, but I read that on the internet. So it's not from me. So but it is a great quote. It is a great quote. And um, well, the best way to learn patience is to be impatient and see how painful it is. So I've made the mistake many, many times of being too impatient. And uh, that's the best way to learn to be more patient. So the quote saying it's to have the good attitude. I think the greatest attitude when investing in the stock market is really to focus on the business, not the stock price, not a few short-term quarters. It's really looking, well, where is this company going to be in five years? And uh, uh, what do I think it's going to be worth then? And if you have a shorter time horizon than five years, I think it's much harder to uh, to obtain good results or have good answers to what really the company is worth. So um, I think the good attitude needed for patients, it's really to understand the business and really looking really at stocks as parts of companies. And, you know, Warren Buffett said it very well that uh, you should buy a stock that uh, if the stock market was closed for 10 years, you would be happy to own. So, And um, I read someone else, another analogy that I really liked, I call it, uh, well, he called it, I don't know exactly uh, who said it, but he called it the Gilligan Island test. So would you be on a desert island with Gilligan with no internet and no phone for 10 years and be happy about your portfolio when you, you get uh, uh, to sleep at night? And uh, I think that's a good test. If you're comfortable with that, probably uh, you'll do all right with those uh, investments. 
yeah, I'm sure just that little thought experiment will automatically eliminate many companies you might come across. But I, I'd love to hit on that that third leg of the stool and being rational. But I, I, I want to know if there's a balance for you between being purely rational. Do you fear you miss out on the potential alchemy that might be experienced by some of those outliers? Yeah, um, when I did the conferences, I did many times called the art of investing. Um, I said about the importance of being rational, but also to be creative and have an open mind. So it's finding the right balance and being kind of rational, analytical, and scientific. And at the same time, you want to be open-minded, creative, looking at things in a very original and different ways. So it's kind of different, but it's kind of trying to balance an engineering mind with an artistic mind. And if you have a little too much of one, I think uh, it, it can distort your results. Uh, so what you look for is to have the right balance and kind of use the best of uh, both ways of looking at the world. Because if you only look at numbers and annual reports and 10 Ks, uh, it's just, that's not, that's not enough. Because like I said, the, the future returns uh, depends on the future. You, you know, past numbers only reward past shareholders. So you have to be able to look at investment and say, well, is this company really going to be a leader for the next five or 10 years? And sometimes they, they have to change and evolve and uh, offer services and products that are new and improved and they need to have the right culture to be able to go there. And I remember uh, probably, I think one of the best investor that understood that was uh, Philip Fisher. So if you read uh, the old books by uh, Phil Fisher, so either Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits or Path to Well through Common Stocks, um, I think it described the process very well. What kind of things you should be looking for a great company. And uh, I remember there's a chart and uh, common stocks and uncommon profits, I think from Ulysses Packard in the 50s. And it basically the chart showed the revenues depending on uh, the number of year the product was introduced. So you could see that, I don't know, for example, in 1957, 60% of revenues came from products they were introduced in the last three years. So you see that there was something in Hewlett Packard in those years that was really innovative and helped them, uh, you know, always create new products and uh, evolve where the market needed to go. So, um, but I think for that, you need a little more uh, uh, open mind and uh, create creativity than uh, just, you know, looking at uh, uh, just the numbers and uh, the 10K, you need a little more. Yeah, Francois, I, I love this so much because there really is so much art behind this. And I'm wondering, you've been fortunate to have a very successful career. Have you just stepped back and thought to yourself, why can't others do what you do? Or why so few are able to? 
Well, like I said, I think um, a big part of it, I think, is the tribal gene. I think most people, uh, you know, they they want to succeed. They want to to be good investors, and they want to get rich, and they want to be good managers for their clients. I think uh, their motives are very noble, but uh, it's hard when you cannot fight uh, the uh, the pressure to follow the tribe. So I think a lot of it is just not having the tribal gene. Um, I think the other thing that, that in my opinion, that really helps uh, becoming a better investor, like I said, is to be a humble. And being humble is really to be in a all perpetual state of always wanting to learn. And it goes very slowly, but if you learn something every day, well, after three years, you've learned a thousand different things. And uh, it's tiny increments, it's tiny things, but when they're all put together, uh, I think it really helps to improve. And you have also to accept, and that's perhaps a hard part also, and it's probably to humility also, is to accept that you'll make mistakes. And if you make mistakes and you know you you can't really get over it, or if you feel humiliated, or uh, if worse, you you deny them and you you don't want to learn from them, uh, I think one way really improve is to look at your mistakes and try to learn something from them. But I think the, the first part is really to accept that you'll make mistakes and it's just the the, the nature of the, the stock market. And I think I said that in my rule of three, one stock out of three that uh, will purchase will turn out to be, well, either mistake or not exactly as as hope for and you have to accept that and that's just the nature of things i mean you're investing in and you don't know the future so you have to to make your own assessment and your best judgment of things but you have to accept that you'll make mistakes it's a little bit like an artist i mean an artist paints every day and some canvases turn out very good and some don't turn out very well and some artists are very obsessed and get very depressed about uh, not producing as good works as they, they, they think they should. But uh, I think it's a waste of time to be depressed, of course. But uh, I think you have to focus on accepting that you'll make mistakes. And for every mistake, you'll learn something. And you can advance a little step because you made one mistake, so two or three. and. Uh, but you you have to permit yourself to make mistakes. If you if you're too scared to make mistakes, well, you won't make great investments. So it's all many many different things that have to be put together. I think to uh, to become a a great investor, and uh, it's a never uh, it's a never ending uh, um, task to always look for. Uh, improving your craft of investing.
Yeah, everything you were just mentioning, I'm pretty sure it was your 2008 annual letter, and you had a great line in there, and I'm pretty sure it was along the lines of, we're always psychologically ready for a recession or a market correction. Uh, and I, I think that just, it just sums up what you were referring to there. So I, I love just hearing some of the, the deep insights into that. And one of those things that keep coming up is around human behavior. And you mentioned that lifelong learning process. We're always looking to learn more. Are there any resources, books that really give a great perspective into human behavior that you found beneficial? Well, there's many. Um, probably uh, Peter Kaufman's book on Charlie Munger, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac. Uh, there's a lot of speeches from uh, Charlie in it, and I think uh, that's probably the best book on uh, human nature, a thing that you can read. And it's it's fun to read, too. So. I mean, that's uh, one of my favorite uh, books. Speaking of books you love, say your entire bookshelf got wiped out. You had to restart with five. What's, what are you going to put on the shelf first? Oh, well, I always like the intelligent investor. I, you know, I think that everything is in there. So the, the, the history of the stock market, the way of looking at stocks, the importance of margin safety, uh, many examples of uh, investments over the years. And uh, I like the way uh, Ben Graham uh, wrote. I think uh, it's fun to read. So that was that will be the first one. Do we have two, three, four, and five? Oh, yes. Uh, well, probably a Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits by uh, Philip Fisher. Uh, Peter Lynch, Warren, one up on Wall Street. Um, well, I would put uh, Peter Kaufman's book on uh, Charlie Munger, number four. And number five would be uh, one of the many, many books uh, written on uh, Warren Buffett. There's so many of them. I don't know uh, which one I would put there. Um, I try to think what's my favorite one. Well, probably if you read... Uh, the big one by uh, Andy Kilpatrick of Permanent Value, the story of Warren Buffett, which uh, I think at some point at 2,000 pages, it was in uh, two tomes, uh, probably you'll, you'll get a very uh, uh, good uh, uh, story of all uh, Warren Buffett's investments. Yeah, I always love hearing about some of those key reads that, that formulate someone's thinking process. And you've talked a lot about just learning, and I feel like learning happens a lot at our edges of our capabilities. So I'm wondering now, just being so experienced in your career, is there anything now that you feel like you're at the edge and you're just getting excited to even explore deeper? Um, that's a good question. Um, I would say that that the best thing would be to be able to identify great entrepreneurs, great management. And, um, you know, six years ago, we bought shares in Constellation Software. And I remember when I read the uh, annual report, um, I thought uh, that was one of the best annual report I read. And uh, 
I think that's the key thing is to find great entrepreneurs. And if you can invest in a, in a company with a great CEO pretty early, uh, I think uh, you can do very well. What year was that Constellation annual report? Uh, well, I read it in early 2014, so it was probably the 2013 annual report. Okay. Yeah, I've gone through some of those in the past. They they always tend to have excellent annual reports. S- speaking of assessing things from an annual perspective, your letters are fantastic, by the way. Uh, I've gone through them all, and every single time I almost pick up something new. And one of my favorite things is you're very familiar with what you guys do, and, and you point out your best mistakes and award the medals there. Are, are, is there anything, let's call it a residual benefit of doing this that only you internally get to understand? Oh, yes, of course. I think um, when I write the annual letter, uh, probably where I spend the most time are the, the three best mistakes of the year, the three medals of the year. And um, it's a long process because I really try to be very honest with me. And sometimes you can, you know, uh, think it was a mistake not to invest in, I don't know, let's say use a Tesla, for instance, because the stock is up 1,000% in the last few years. But I try to really look back, was it a company for me? Was it a company I really understood? Was it a company that I really could value and have a good uh, assessment of their earning power? And sometimes I realized that, uh, no, I couldn't. So was it really a mistake? Uh, Perhaps not, because I don't think it really fit into my criteria and circle of competence. So it's it's a long process, and it really helps me to rethink the way I look at securities and trying to learn something. And uh, most of the time, the big lesson was not purchasing a great company, a company I admire and understood, because the valuation seems a little high. Most of the time, those were the mistakes. Sometimes I sold too soon for some short-term or simple reason that didn't really make sense long-term. And sometimes I missed uh, a change in management or a change in the business model of a company that I should have seen because I knew the company well. And probably a good example of that is Microsoft. I think three or four or five years ago, I think Microsoft changed a few things in their business model and I think it's a totally different business today than it was six or seven years ago. And I should have seen that. And uh, that was a mistake. And I, I think I gave it the uh, bronze medal this year. Um, because when there, it's a company that you've known for many years, we've owned it for a while, uh, you should be able to see that uh, things change for the best. And uh, sometimes it's... It's already um, reflected on the valuation of the stock, but sometimes it isn't. So uh, in the case of Microsoft, I think we should have seen it. It was a big mistake not seeing it. So by doing that exercise, I think I really go deep into 
you know, why didn't I purchase that? Or why did I sell too soon? Or sometimes it was a mistake just buying the securities in the first place. So what was a mistake? And, uh, and I think that the, a long time is spent on that to, to just arrive to three names. Uh, but I think that the process is very useful because every year I learn something. And uh, I think to have that section forced to me i forced myself to put that in the uh, the annual report uh yeah i forced myself every year to spend a few days you know thinking about what what were the big mistakes of the last few years and what did i learn from that yeah, you mentioned at the start of this conversation, to be a great artist, you have to study some of the greats. So that's one of those techniques I, I've taken from you and implemented in the business I'm involved with. And just the benefits there have been so instrumental. <laughs> so thank you for that. Wow, very kind. One, one thing I want to touch on quickly, uh, because this is so difficult to do, how do you measure skill versus luck in your own success? Oh, yes. Well, I like to think it's skill and work hard work but sometimes it can be luck but you know i understand probabilities so i know that uh, good luck is not sustainable so i don't want to count on that Uh, so you know i never buy lottery tickets uh, because i don't think the odds are in my favor Uh, so um, usually i would say that um, skill is really in the process and the way you invest. And um, I think when you have a very sound approach, the odds of success are good. But, you know, odds of 65 or 70% of success, they're not 100%. They're 65, 70, but it's better than 50. Because if you... Uh, just uh, toss a coin, it's 50% chance of success. So you, you want a little more than that. So I think skill is really f- to find your own way of looking at security so that uh, you can improve your odds of success. Probably the best you can do is something like two thirds of uh, the time being right, which is 67% of success. But you know, it's it's still good enough. Um, and, you know, I think the, the key thing is to focus on your process to improve those odds. So you have investment philosophy, the kind of companies you understand, the margin of safety you have, all those little things you do that adds up so that you have 67% of success in investment decisions. And, um, how do you, I think it's really in the um, depth of your uh, approach and the soundness of your investment philosophy that you can, I hope so, have skills instead of luck. And uh, sometimes I look at other managers' uh, portfolio and the results, and I, I may be wrong there, but uh, sometimes I, just by looking at the, the names in their portfolio, I know that they've been lucky because you know it just happened that they they own the right stocks at the right time. But 
I'll look at their portfolio over many, many years and don't see a real pattern of philosophy and approach that makes sense. And uh, one thing I'll look at, for instance, is their turnover ratio. When they have a turnover ratio of 100%, I think it's very hard to to convince me that they have a very precise and sound investment approach, at least for the long one. So it's all little, little things I'll look uh, that I think you can distinguish between skill and luck. But of course, there's nothing like time, you know, uh, that will really show if it was luck or skill. Yeah, we talk about patterns of success, and there are few people of any who have quite the track record you do for such an extended period of time. I know we're about to wrap up here. I'd love to know, what's the hardest part of your job? Um, the hardest part? Um, um, well, of course, when you have a few tough years, when you underperform or you've made some mistakes and you have uh, not as good results, uh, that that can be challenging because uh, you'll you'll rethink the way you look at things and see that if you were not mistaken or if there's something you didn't do right. Sometimes you underperform for no reason because you just for some reason your stock are just out of favor, and it does happen. And sometimes there's good reasons for the performance. You, you made mistakes, you made bad judgment of either management of the solidity of the business. So probably the tough part is really to distinguish, is it the right time to be patient or is it the right time you know, to accept you've made mistakes, sell and buy something else? That's very tough. And of course, when you have a few tough quarters, well, the clients, uh, not all of them, but some can get a little impatient and, uh, you know, you, you don't want to disappoint them. So you, there's, there's some pressure for performance that you want to be able to, to go beyond that and just focus on the long-term process and the long-term results of the companies. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier. It's really to focus on what's happening to the companies, not the stock. But uh, when you have a few tough quarters, uh, it's a little tougher to be as emotionless as you'd like to be. Certainly but easier said than think, done. Yeah, but if you want to be a money manager, you have to accept that you'll have periods of underperformance because it's inevitable. So Francois, we're going to wrap up here with, with two questions. That I just always love hearing different people's perspective on. So the first one's going to be, if you could sit down for an evening, and an interview with anyone dead or alive, but it just can't be a family member or friend, who would you want to sit down to spend the evening with? Oh. Well, there's many great people I admire, many great artists and writers and philosophers but if i had just pick one to spend the evening and just ask questions about their life and 
it would be Warren Buffett. Maybe you should place a, a bid for one of his his lunches one year. Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, perhaps I'm a, too much of a value investor. But, uh. <laughs> exactly. So, so the final one here, we we've talked. Uh, a lot I know about. that uh, friends did that, and they were very very happy they did. So perhaps I I should rethink. Uh, for that uh, <laughs> so we talked a lot about art and I would love to know if you could own one painting what would it be any painting well the first painting I saw something like 33 years ago that really stroked me as being a masterpiece and really ignited my interest in art was a painting by Claude Monet a cathedral of Rouen. Um, he did a series of about 20 paintings of uh, the cathedral de Rouen. So if I had to pick just one, it would be probably the one that is at the suns uh, sunset. I think it's at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. So if I had to pick one, that would be the one. That's a great place to end. Francois, this has been too informative for me and an absolute pleasure to spend this hour with you. I can't thank you enough for the time. If you want the listeners to stay more connected with you, do you want them heading anywhere just to, to read more about you? Yeah, probably on the website. They can read the, the annual letters. I mean, what I think about investments and the stock market, and it's really in there. Fantastic. Well, we'll have all that linked up in the show notes. And once again, I, I highly recommend those. They're fantastic reads. But Francois Rochon, I cannot appreciate and thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you very much. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.